Book Two, Part Three of Xenophon's Anabasis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Anabasis by Xenophon, translated by H. G. Dakins. Book Two, Part Three. Number Five. After this, they reached the river Zapatas, which is four hundred feet broad, and here they halted three days. During the interval, suspicions were rife, though no act of treachery displayed itself. Clericus accordingly resolved to bring to an end these feelings of mistrust before they led to war. Consequently, he sent a messenger to the Persian to say that he desired an interview with him, to which the other readily consented. As soon as they were met, Clearchus spoke as follows. "'Tis a fairness, he said. "'I do not forget that oaths have been exchanged between us.' and right hands shaken, in token that we will abstain from mutual injury. But I can see that you watch us narrowly as if we were foes, and we, seeing this, watch you narrowly in return. But, as I fail to discover, after investigation, that you are endeavouring to do as a mischief, and I am quite sure that nothing of the sort has ever entered our heads with regard to you, the best plan seemed to me to come and talk the matter over with you, so that, if possible, we might dispel the mutual distrust on either side. For I have known people ere now, the victims in some cases of calumny, or possibly of mere suspicion, who, in apprehension of one another, and eager to deal the first blow, have committed irreparable wrong against those who neither intended nor so much as harboured a thought of mischief against them. I have come to you under a conviction that such misunderstandings may best be put a stop to by personal intercourse, and I wish to instruct you plainly that you are wrong in mistrusting us. The first and weightiest reason is that the oath which we took in the sight of heaven are a barrier to mutual hostility. I envy not the man whose conscience tells him that he has disregarded these. For, in a war with heaven, by what swiftness of foot can a man escape? in what quarter find refuge, in what darkness slink away and be hid, to what strong fortress scale and be out of reach, are not all things in all ways subject to the gods, is not their lordship over all alike outspread? As touching the gods, therefore, and our oaths, that is how I view this matter. To their safekeeping we consigned the friendship which we solemnly contracted. But, turning to matters human, you I look upon as our greatest blessing in this present time. With you every path is plain to us, every river passable, and of provisions we shall know no stint. But without you all our way is through darkness, for we know nothing concerning it. Every river will be an obstacle, each multitude a terror. But, worst terror of all, the vast wilderness so full of endless perplexity. Nay, if in a fit of madness we murdered you, what then? In slaying our benefactor, should we not have challenged to enter the lists against us a more formidable antagonist in the king himself? Let me tell you how many high hopes I should rob myself of were I to take in hand to do you mischief. I coveted the friendship of Cyrus. I believed him to be abler than any man of his day to benefit those whom he chose, but to-day I look, and behold, it is you who are in his place. The power which belonged to Cyrus and his territory are yours now. You have them, and your own satrapy besides, safe and sound. 
while the king's power, which was a thorn in the side of Cyrus, is your support. This being so, it would be madness not to wish to be your friend. But I will go further, and state to you the reasons of my confidence that you on your side will desire our friendship. I know that the Mysians are a cause of trouble to you, and I flatter myself that with my present force I could render them humbly obedient to you. This applies to the Pisidians also, and I am told there are many other such tribes besides. I think I can deal with them all. They shall cease from being a constant disturbance to your peace and prosperity. Then there are the Egyptians. I know your anger against them to-day is very great. Nor can I see what better force you will find to help you in chastising them than this which marches at my back to-day. Again, if you seek the friendship of any of your neighbours round, there shall be no friend so great as you. If any one annoys you, with us as your faithful servitors you shall be lorded over him. And such service we will render you, not as hirelings merely for pay's sake, but for the gratitude which we shall rightly feel to you, to whom we owe our lives. As I dwell on these matters, I confess, the idea of your feeling mistrust of us is so astonishing that I would give much to discover the name of the man who is so clever of speech that he can persuade you that we harbour designs against you. Clearchus ended, and Tissaphernes responded thus. I am glad, Clearchus, to listen to your sensible remarks, for with the sentiments you hold, if you were to devise any mischief against me, it could only be out of malevolence to yourself. But if you imagine that you, on your side, have any better reason to mistrust the king and me, than we you, listen to me in turn, and I will undeceive you. I ask you, does it seem to you that we lack the means, if we had the will, to destroy you? Have we not horsemen enough, or infantry, or whatever other arm you like, whereby we may be able to injure you, without risk of suffering in return? Or possibly, do we seem to you to lack the physical surroundings suitable for attacking you? Do you not see all these great plains which you would find it hard enough to traverse even when they are friendly? And all yonder great mountain chains left for you to cross, which we can at any time occupy in advance and render impossible? And all those rivers on whose banks we can deal craftily by you, checking and controlling and choosing the right number of you whom we care to fight? Nay, there are some which you will not be able to cross at all unless we transport you to the other side. And, if at all these points we were worsted, yet fire, as they say, is stronger than the fruit of the field. We can burn it down and call up famine in arms against you, against which you, for all your bravery, will never be able to contend. Why, then, with all these avenues of attack, this machinery of war open to us, not one of which can be turned against ourselves? Why should we select from among them all that method which alone in the sight of God is impious, and of man abominable. Surely it belongs to people altogether without resources, who are helplessly struggling in the toils of fate, and are villains to boot, to seek accomplishment of their desires by perjury to heaven and faithlessness to their fellows. We are not so unreasoning, Clericus, nor so foolish. Why, when we had it in our power to destroy you, did we not proceed to do it? Know well that the cause of this was nothing less than my passion to prove myself faithful to the Hellenes, and that, as Cyrus went up, relying on a foreign force attracted by payment, I in turn might go down strong in the same through service rendered. 
various ways in which you Hellenes may be useful to me, you yourself have mentioned, but there is one still greater. It is the great king's privilege alone to wear the tiara upright upon his head. Yet, in your presence, it may be given to another mortal to wear it upright, here, upon his heart. Throughout this speech he seemed to Clearchus to be speaking the truth, and he rejoined, then are not those worthy of the worst penalties who, in spite of all that exists to cement our friendship, endeavour by slander to make us enemies? Even so, replied Tissaphernes, and if your generals and captains care to come in some open and public way, I will name to you those who tell me that you are plotting against me and the army under me. Good, replied Clearchus. I will bring all, and I will show you, on my side, the source from which I derive my information concerning you. After this conversation, Tissaphernes, with kindliest expression, invited Clearchus to remain with him at the time, and entertained him at dinner. Next day, Clearchus returned to the camp, and made no secret of his persuasion that he, at any rate, stood high in the affections of Tissaphernes, and he reported what he had said, insisting that those invited ought to go to Tissaphernes, and that any Hellene convicted of calumnious language ought to be punished, not only as traitors themselves, but as disaffected to their fellow-countrymen. The slanderer and traducer was Menon. So, at any rate, he suspected, because he knew that he had had meetings with Tissaphernes whilst he was with Arias, and was factiously opposed to himself, plotting how to win over the whole army to him as a means of winning the good graces of Tissaphernes. But Clearchus wanted the entire army to give its mind to no one else, and that refractory people should be put out of the way. Some of the soldiers protested. The captains and generals had better not all go. It was better not to put too much confidence into Sophernus. But Clearchus insisted so strongly that finally it was arranged for five generals to go and twenty captains. These were accompanied by about two hundred of the other soldiers, who took the opportunity of marketing. On arrival at the doors of Tissaphernes's quarters, the generals were summoned inside. They were Proxenus the Boeotian, Menon the Thessalian, Aegis the Arcadian, Clearchus the Laconian, and Socrates the Achaean, while the captains remained at the doors. Not long after that, at one and the same signal, those within were seized and those without cut down, after which some of the barbarian horsemen galloped over the plain, killing every Hellene they encountered, bond or free. The Hellenes, as they looked from the camp, viewed that strange horsemanship with surprise, and could not explain to themselves what it all meant, until Nicarchus the Arcadian came tearing along for bare life with a wound in the belly, and clutching his protruding entrails in his hands. He told them all that had happened. Instantly the Hellenes ran to their arms, one and all, in utter consternation, and fully expecting that the enemy would instantly be down upon the camp. However, they did not all come. Only Araeus came, and Arteosus, and Mithridates, who were Cyrus's most faithful friends. But the interpreter of the Hellenes said he saw and recognized the brother of Tissaphernes also with them. They had at their back other Persians also, armed with caresses as many as three hundred. As soon as they were within a short distance, they bade any general or captain of the Hellenes who might be there to approach and hear a message from the king. After this, two Hellene generals went out with all precaution. These were Cleonal, the Orchomenian, and Sophonitus, the Stymphalian, 
attended by Xenophon the Athenian, who went to learn news of Proxenus. Chirisophus was at the time away in a village with a party gathering provisions. As soon as they had halted within earshot, Araeus said, Hellenes, Clearchus being shown to have committed perjury and to have broken the truce, has suffered the penalty, and he is dead. But Proxenus and Menon, in return for having given information of his treachery, are in high esteem and honour. As to yourselves, the king demands your arms. He claims them as his, since they belong to Cyrus, who was his slave. To this the Hellenes made answer by the mouth of Cleonor of Orchomenus, their spokesman, who said, addressing Arius, Thou villain, Arius, and you the rest of you, who were Cyrus's friends, have you no shame before God or man, first to swear to us that you have the same friends and the same enemies as we ourselves, and then to turn and betray us, making common cause with Sophernus, that most impious and villainous of men. With him you have murdered the very man to whom you gave your solemn word and oath, and to the rest of us turned traitors, and, having so done, you join hand with our enemies to come against us. Araeus answered, There is no doubt but that Clearchus has been known for some time to harbour designs against Tisiphernus and Arontas, and all of us who side with them. Taking up this assertion, Xenophon said, Well then, granting that Clearchus broke the truth, contrary to our oaths, he has his deserts, for perjurers deserve to perish. But where are Proxenus and Menon, our generals, and your good friends and benefactors, as you admit? Send them back to us. Surely, just because they are friends of both parties, they will try to give us the best advice for you and for us. At this, the Asiatics stood discussing with one another for a long while, and then they went away without vouchsaving a word. Number 6. The generals who were thus seized were taken up to the king, and there decapitated. The first of these, Clearchus, was a thorough soldier, and a true lover of fighting. This is the testimony of all who knew him intimately. As long as the war between the Lacedaemonians and Athenians lasted, he could find occupation at home, but after the peace he persuaded his own city that the Thracians were injuring the Hellenes, and having secured his object, set sail, empowered by the Ephorate, to make war upon the Thracians north of the Chersonese and Perinthus. But he had no sooner fairly started than, for some reason or other, the Ephors changed their minds and endeavoured to bring him back again from the Isthmus. Thereupon he refused further obedience and went off with sails set for the Hellespont. In consequence he was condemned to death by the Spartan authorities for disobedience to orders, and now, finding himself in exile, he came to Cyrus. Working on the feelings of that prince, in language described elsewhere, he received from his entertainer a present of ten thousand derricks. Having got his money, he did not sink into a life of ease and indolence, but collected an army with it, carried on war against the Thracians, and conquered them in battle, and from that date onwards harried and plundered them with war incessantly, until Cyrus wanted his army, whereupon he at once went off in hopes of finding another sphere of warfare in his company. These, I take it, were the characteristic acts of a man whose affections are set on warfare. When it is open to him to enjoy peace with honour, no shame, no injury attached, still he prefers war. When he may live at home at ease, he insists on toil, if only it may end in fighting. When it is given to him to keep his riches without risk, he would rather lessen his fortune by the pastime of battle.' 
To put it briefly, war was his mistress. Just as another man will spend his fortune on a favourite, or to gratify some pleasure, so he chose to squander his substance on soldiering. But if the life of a soldier was a passion with him, he was nonetheless a soldier born, as herein appears. Danger was a delight to him. He courted it, attacking the enemy by night or by day, and in difficulties he did not lose his head, as all who ever served in a campaign with him would with one consent allow. A good soldier. The question arises, was he equally good as a commander? It must be admitted that, as far as was compatible with his quality of temper, he was, none more so, capable to a singular degree of devising how his army was to get supplies, and of actually getting them, he was also capable of impressing upon those about him that Clearchus must be obeyed, and that he brought about by the very hardness of his nature. With a scowling expression and a harshly grating voice, he chastised with severity, and at times with such fury that he was sorry afterwards himself for what he had done. Yet it was not without purpose that he applied the whip. He had a theory that there was no good to be got out of an unchastened army. A saying of his is regarded to the effect that the soldier who is to mount guard and keep his hands off his friends, and be ready to dash without a moment's hesitation against a foe, must fear his commander more than the enemy. Accordingly, in any strait, this was the man whom the soldiers were eager to obey, and they would have no other in his place. The cloud which lay upon his brow at those times lit up with brightness, his face became radiant, and the old sternness was so charged with vigour and knitted strength to meet the foe, that it savoured of salvation, not of cruelty. But when the pinch of danger was past, and it was open to them to go and taste subordination under some other officer, many forsook him. So lacking in grace of manner was he, but was ever harsh and savage, so that the feeling of the soldiers towards him was that of schoolboys to a master. In other words, though it was not his good fortune ever to have followers inspired solely by friendship or good will, yet those who found themselves under him, either by state appointment or through want or other arch necessity, yielded him implicit obedience. From the moment that he led them to victory, the elements which went to make his soldiers efficient were numerous enough. There was the feeling of confidence in facing the foe, which never left them, and there was the dread of punishment at his hands to keep them orderly. In this way, and to this extent, he knew how to rule. But to play a subordinate part himself he had no great taste. So, at any rate, it was said. At the time of his death he must have been about fifty years of age. Proxenus, the Boeotian, was of a different temperament. It had been the dream of his boyhood to become a man capable of great achievements. In obedience to this passionate desire it was that he paid his fee to Gorgias of Leontini. After enjoying that teacher's society, he flattered himself that he must be at once qualified to rule, and while he was on friendly terms with the leaders of the age, he was not to be outdone in reciprocity of service. In this mood he threw himself into the projects of Cyrus, and in return expected to derive from this essay the reward of a great name, large power, and wide wealth. But for all that he pitched his hopes so high, it was none the less evident that he would refuse to gain any of the ends he set before him wrongfully. Righteously and honourably he would obtain them, if he might, or else forgo them. As a commander he had the art of leading gentlemen but he failed to inspire adequately either respect for himself or fear in the soldiers under him. Indeed, 
he showed a more delicate regard for his soldiers than his subordinates for him, and he was indisputably more apprehensive of incurring their hatred than they were of losing their fidelity. The one thing needful to real and recognized generalship was, he thought, to praise the virtues and to withhold praise from the evildoer. It can be easily understood, then, that of those who were brought in contact with him, the good and noble indeed were his well-wishers, but he laid himself open to the machinations of the base, who looked upon him as a person to be dealt with as they liked. At the time of his death he was only thirty years of age. As to Menon, the Thessalian, the mainspring of his action was obvious. What he sought after insatiably was wealth. Rule he sought after only as a stepping-stone to larger spoils. Honours and high estate he craved for simply that he might extend the area of his gains, and if he studied to be on friendly terms with the powerful, it was in order that he might commit wrong with impunity. The shortest road to the achievement of his desires lay, he thought, through false swearing, lying, and cheating, for in his vocabulary simplicity and truth were synonyms of folly. Natural affection he clearly entertained for nobody. If he called a man his friend, it might be looked upon as certain that he was bent on ensnaring him. Laughter at an enemy he considered out of place, but his whole conversation turned upon the ridicule of his associates. In like manner the possessions of his foes were secure from his designs, since it was no easy task, he thought, to steal from people on their guard, but it was his particular good fortune to have discovered how easy it is to rob a friend in the midst of his security. If it were a perjured person or a wrongdoer, he dreaded him as well-armed and entrenched, but the honourable and the truth-loving he tried to practice on, regarding them as weaklings devoid of manhood, and as other men pride themselves on piety and truth and righteousness, so Menon prided himself on a capacity for fraud, on the fabrication of lies, on the mockery and scorn of friends. The man who was not a rogue he ever looked upon as only half-educated. Did he aspire to the first place in another man's friendship, he set about his object by slandering those who stood nearest to him in affection. He contrived to secure the obedience of his soldiers by making himself an accomplice in their misdeeds, and the fluency with which he vaunted his own capacity and readiness for enormous guilt was a sufficient title to be honoured and courted by them. Or, if any one stood aloof from him, he set it down as a meritorious act of kindness on his part that during their intercourse he had not robbed him of existence. As to certain obscure charges brought against his character, these may certainly be fabrications. I confine myself to the following facts, which are known to all. He was in the bloom of youth when he procured from Aristippus the command of his mercenaries. He had not yet lost that bloom when he became exceedingly intimate with Arias, a barbarian whose liking for fair young men was the explanation, and before he had grown a beard himself he had contracted a similar relationship with a bearded favourite named Therapes. When his fellow-generals were put to death on the plea that they had marched with Cyrus against the king, he alone, although he had shared their conduct, was exempted from their fate. But after their death the vengeance of the king fell upon him, and he was put to death, not like Clearchus and the others, by what would appear to be the speediest of deaths, decapitation. But, as report says, he lived for a year in pain and disgrace, and died the death of a felon. Agais the Arcadian and Socrates the Archean were both among the sufferers who were put to death. To the credit, be it said, of both, no one ever derided either as cowardly in war. 
no one ever had a fault to find with either on the score of friendship. They were about thirty-five years of age. End of Book Two